President Biden has taken a pro-Israel stance since the Hamas attacks. But in the past few days, the president has begun to talk more about the situation on the ground in Gaza. America's message to the region coming up. Today is Monday, October 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, many Palestinians who live in Jordan have family in Gaza. For them, the past 10 days have been agonizing. I actually have never felt this nervous or anxious or scared in my life. More from two Palestinians who are watching and waiting in Amman, Jordan. And the ACLU says as many as 1,000 immigrant families remain separated after their split up at the border during Donald Trump's presidency. Today, the Justice Department agreed to a settlement to assist these families. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A short time ago in Tel Aviv... Air raid sirens rang out, disrupting high-level meetings between Israel and the U.S. over Israel's war against the Palestinian militant group Hamas, according to State Department spokesman Matthew Miller, NPR's Michelle Kellermans in Tel Aviv. Secretary Blinken met twice today with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The second time was here in Tel Aviv on the grounds of the Defense Ministry, and they were meeting in the Prime Minister's office here, not only with um, Netanyahu, but also with what he calls his war cabinet, and that's when the air raid sirens went off. They um, had to shelter in a bunker for five minutes, we're told, by the State Department. That's all of them, with the prime minister and the cabinet. And they have since moved to a command center in the main building to continue discussions. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reporting air raid sirens went off multiple times underscoring the constant threat of Hamas rocket attacks and retaliatory Israeli airstrikes on Gaza since the latest war began October 7th. NPR's Ea Batrawi is following the growing humanitarian crisis inside Gaza. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, says most of its shelters in Gaza have run out of clean water. Shops have run out of bottled water, and people's water tanks have emptied. Some families in Gaza are now drinking contaminated water and even seawater. Doctors Without Borders says hospitals have also run out of painkillers. It says the wounded, many of them children, are left screaming in pain. The U.N. humanitarian organization says hospitals only have a few hours of fuel left for generators. The organization's chief, Martin Griffiths, says the specter of death is hanging over Gaza. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Jerusalem. Gaza officials say more than 2,700 people have died in Israeli strikes. In Israel, the death toll from Hamas attacks has reached at least 1,300. Microsoft-owned LinkedIn says it is now laying off nearly 700 employees in the company's second round of staff cuts this year. NPR's Bobby Allen reports it comes as demand for hiring services slows. There are fewer workers searching for new jobs and also a smaller number of companies looking to hire. And that has hit LinkedIn's bottom line. The company plans to lay off 668 employees across teams including engineering and finance. It represents only 3% of LinkedIn's total staff, but it is the second such cut this year. It is also a sign that the tech industry's downsizing since the height of the pandemic is continuing. According to tech industry job tracker layoffs.fyi, nearly 250,000 tech workers have been laid off this year, already 50% more tech job losses than last year's total. Despite trimming its staff, LinkedIn says it's earned more money and expanded its services since being acquired by Microsoft in 2016. Bobby Allen, NPR News. 
It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is reckoning with an overload of families that need shelter. Today, the governor said that once the number of households placed in the shelter system reaches 7,500, it can no longer guarantee placements even for eligible families. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, the state expects to reach that limit by the end of the month. There are currently 6,945 households in the state-funded family shelter system. Over the past year, the caseload has more than doubled. A large part of the growth is driven by migrant families, many from Haiti, arriving in the state. Governor Maura Healy says the state can't secure more housing and will create a wait list. Families with high needs, including health and safety risks, will be prioritized for shelter placement. Healy has appointed a new person to lead the system and says her administration's focus is on helping shelter residents find work so they can exit the system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The Cambridge City Council will vote tonight on a proposal to allow affordable housing projects in the city to exceed typical height restrictions. It could allow buildings in Cambridge to be as tall as 15 stories. Critics have said the proposal would change the character of the city and cast shadows. Carl Nagy Kirschlin is executive director of Cambridge housing nonprofit Justice Start. He says not taking this opportunity would change the city's character even more. What's attracted people to Cambridge is its racial economic diversity, which is really endangered um, by the cost of housing. So something has to give. So we're going to have bigger buildings, but they're going to be well-designed. They're going to be contextual with the neighborhoods that they're in. Nagy Kirschlin says that a recent affordable housing project he worked on got about 1,400 applicants for just 14 units. A federal judge has rejected lawsuits by two fishing groups challenging federal environmental approvals for a wind farm off Martha's Vineyard. The Vineyard Wind Project consists of 62 turbines installed a mile apart from each other. Reuters reports that the groups had argued that the turbines could harm marine species and cut fishermen off from valuable fishing areas. The judge found that the groups had not adequately demonstrated potential harms to their businesses. In the forecast, looks like a lot of clouds around overnight tonight. Should have some sporadic showers, temperatures in the mid to upper 40s. Then for tomorrow, some clouds and maybe a little bit of rain in the morning. Then mostly sunny skies in the afternoon, highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese, only in theaters October 20th. Rated R. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden has been full-throated in his support for Israel after the deadly attacks by Hamas. He has described in detail how Jewish civilians were killed in the attack, and he called it the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Israel has the right to defend itself and its people. Full stop. There's never justification for terrorist attacks. But this weekend, the president began to talk more about the situation on the ground in Gaza. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza, innocent Palestinian families and the vast majority have nothing to do with Hamas. They're being used as human shields. 
We wanted to explore this shift in tone and also to talk about what Republicans are saying about the war. And to do that, we're joined now by NPR national political correspondent, Mara Lyson. Hey, Mara. Hey, Ailsa. So what should we make of the way that President Biden has chosen to talk about this conflict? Like, what do you notice about the way he's choosing his words? Well, President Biden is a guy who has, over time, occasionally got twisted up in his words. But this time, he has been crystal clear about Israel. He's been about as forceful and morally clear as he's ever been. He's expressed firm support, told Israel they will get whatever help they want, that the U.S. has Israel's back, Hamas is pure evil. I think that reflects not only the bipartisan support that exists for Israel right now in the United States, but also Biden has had a career-long identity as a supporter of Israel. He talked about meeting Golda Meir 50 years ago in 1973. Hmm. Golda Meir was the fourth prime minister of Israel and the first female prime minister. So this is something that is a long-standing conviction on his part. You just heard him say there's no justification for the attack. And in that second clip, he talked about Hamas using Palestinians as human shields. So he's trying to make it clear there is no moral equivalence here between the terrorist acts of Hamas and the retaliation by Israel. And, and can you tell us more about this shift in his messaging? Like, what stands out to you? Well, first, his message was all about Israel and the atrocities and how America stands behind Israel. This right. new message is much more nuanced. It's about how important it is that Israel acts according to the rule of law, to the law of war. He's also said Israel should not reoccupy Gaza over the long term. That's something the Israelis also say they don't want to do. He's trying to put more emphasis on keeping the conflict contained, making sure it doesn't evolve into a regional conflagration involving countries like Iran. And I think he is, I don't think he's tempering his support for Israel, but this is a volatile situation that could get out of hand. And it's also not clear how long or if Israel can actually eliminate Hamas. That's their stated goal. Uh, we don't know how long it will take or if it's even possible. The Israeli defense minister told the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, that this is going to be very long and very tough. There will be a lot of casualties. Well, what about Republicans? I mean, especially Republicans who are running for president. How are they describing this conflict? Well, they're the Republicans running for president, and then there's Donald Trump. Right. Um, the big news, of course, was Trump's comments. He's been walking them back ever since that Hezbollah is very smart. Bibi let us down. Remarkable dissing of Israel at this moment. And he got some criticism from the other Republican candidates, which is very unusual. But they have been all over the map. There is a large and growing isolationist wing in the Republican Party, but also a long history of strongly supporting Israel. You have Ron DeSantis saying all Palestinians are anti semites and shouldn't be allowed into the U.S. as refugees. You've got Tim Scott and Mike Pence saying that the U.S. should send special forces into Gaza to rescue American hostages. And real quick, Mara, how big of a political issue do you think this will be in the 2024 race? I think that depends on how long the Israeli siege of Gaza goes on, how ugly it is. Uh, and if it looks like Israel is succeeding, it might help Biden in the 2024 elections. But the bottom line is that foreign policy is one of the things voters pay the least <laughs> attention to. That is NPR's Mara Liasson. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you. The federal government has reached a deal to compensate migrant families who were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border during the Trump administration. It has also agreed to bar any similar policy for nearly a decade. Jasmine Garst is NPR's immigration correspondent. She is with us now to explain the settlement that's been announced today with the ACLU. Hey there, Jasmine. Hello. Hi. So just start with a brief reminder of, of what went down with these family separations? 
Sure, over 5,000 families were separated during the Trump administration under its so-called zero-tolerance policy. This happened in 2017 and 2018, and in many cases, these children were taken to juvenile centers while parents were prosecuted and often deported. Uh, the stories, the testimonies are absolutely heart-wrenching. Okay, so the settlement announced today, what have the parties agreed on? A federal judge in San Diego still needs to sign off on the settlement. Families will get an interview with an asylum officer who will be briefed on what they went through. They'll also get work authorization and housing benefits. Earlier today, I spoke to Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I have met with reunited families. The trauma does not end upon reunification. There is a great deal of healing needed, and we are committed uh, to doing that which is necessary to restoring these individuals, their health and well-being. Okay, so he's talking about reunited families, but there are some families that have not yet been reunited, right? Is there anything here for them? Well, the U.S. government will continue to pay to help reunify the families who are still separated, continuing to find parents and guardians who got deported and bring them back to the U.S. According to the ACLU, up to a thousand kids still have not been reunified with their parents. Here's Lee Gallant. He's the ACLU lead counsel on this case. The Trump administration did not keep records. The Court said it appears that the Trump administration tracked property more diligently than they tracked the whereabouts of little children. We have been searching for years for these families. And those kids, they're just scattered around the country, living with extended relatives, family, friends, or under state supervision. And this bar on reinstituting any policy, anything like this, for nearly a decade, what, what do we know about that? Well, it's a big part of the settlement. It prohibits immigration officials from imposing a blanket policy of family separation for the next eight years. And it's not a stretch. Uh, asked about this during a town hall back in May, former President Trump refused to rule out reinstituting the family separation policy if he's reelected. If the family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family. They don't come. So I know it sounds harsh. You know, I asked Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas about this, and here's what he had to say. My response is quite succinct, and that is that when we promulgate policies, it is vital that we adhere to our country's fundamental values, and we will not deviate from that. And real quick, Jasmine, the families who were separated, do they get any financial compensation? No, there will be no uh, financial compensation, not under this settlement, none of that. And Piers Jasmine Guards, thank you. Actress Suzanne Summers died yesterday after battling breast cancer for more than two decades. As NPR's Anastasia Siukis reports, Summers parlayed her comedic talents into entirely new endeavors as an author and wildly successful entrepreneur. Suzanne Summers first caught attention in a role in the 1973 film American Graffiti. She was on screen for less than 10 seconds and didn't say a word, but her beauty and charm were more than enough. 
That scene in American Graffiti got her an audition for the sitcom Three's Company, which premiered in 1977. For five seasons, Summers was a star on one of the most popular shows on television, playing the ultimate ditzy blonde. But after she demanded a raise from ABC, she was fired. That didn't end her television career. There was a short-lived show called She's the Sheriff, which ran for three seasons in the 1980s. And through most of the 1990s, she starred in another sitcom, this one called Step by Step. She even sang on that one. Tonight we'll put all other things aside. Come up here. But in the meantime, she developed a whole other role as a business mogul. I used to do aerobics till I dropped. Then I found Thighmaster. Summers began a long stint as the spokesperson for the Thighmaster workout device, one of the quintessential as-seen-on-TV products of the 1990s. Summers and her husband, Alan Hamill, came to be the sole owners of the business. Summers told the podcast Hollywood Raw last year she had sold about 15 million Thighmasters at around $20 a pop. For someone who played the dumbest blonde on television, I have a really good brain. <laughs> she was open about her health struggles. In 2018, she talked to Yahoo Lifestyle about her cancer. When you hear those three words, you have cancer, wow, that's coming face to face with your mortality. Even as she was battling cancer, Summers remained very much in the public eye. She wrote more than two dozen books, including 14 bestsellers. The books centered around health and wellness, and she also appeared on Dancing with the Stars. After her death, tributes poured in on social media from her friends and former colleagues. Fellow actress Morgan Fairchild said the two supported each other through health challenges. Fairchild wrote, quote, when we ran into each other, she would lean over and whisper, we're survivors. Also on social media, singer Barry Manilow wrote, quote, she was the sister I never had and my close confidant forever. We shared triumphs and heartaches. I will miss her dearly and hope that she is now out of pain and at peace. Today, Summers would have turned 77 years old. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. Three's company too. Come and dance on our floor. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. The National Pharmacy chain Rite Aid faces more than 1,000 lawsuits linked to the sale of OxyContin and other opioid pain pills. That story coming up in about 20 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing middle and high schoolers through human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org. A mighty Monday on Wall Street. The Dow rose nearly a full percent. S&P picked up more than a full percent. The Nasdaq finished up one and two-tenths percent. The average price of gasoline in the state continues to fall. According to AAA Northeast, the new statewide average is 364 a gallon. That's a nickel lower than a week ago and 17 cents lower than a month ago. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and signature dishes like crab-crusted haddock and superfood salad. Eight locations in greater Boston, burtonsgrill.com. And the ICA, innovative new art by Boston-area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. I'm Scott Simon. 
Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Looks like scattered showers over the next few hours, partly cloudy overnight tonight down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow could begin with drizzle, but skies should brighten through the day. Lots of sunshine by the afternoon, again right around 60 degrees. 56 now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Many college students have added a new item to their packing lists this year, naloxone, a medicine that reverses opioid overdoses. It's a response to a worrying trend with overdoses on campuses across the country, from Ohio State to the University of Oregon. At UNC Chapel Hill, multiple students have died from fentanyl overdoses. Liz Schlemmer of WUNC spoke to a group of students working to make the overdose medication more available on campus. So it's all back here. 21-year-old college senior Riley Sullivan has more vials of naloxone in the closet of his off-campus apartment than even the local hospital keeps in stock. This is 518 vials of naloxone. Sullivan is distributing all of it to his fellow UNC classmates this fall. He demonstrates how to inject the medicine on an orange he pulls from his fridge. Pop the cap off of your vial. That breaks the sterile seal. Then he pulls out the syringe. It's kind of like opening string cheese almost. Then he loads the medicine and injects it into the orange. He says to be gentle. If you are in the position where you have had to give somebody naloxone, they've almost died. And students have died of fentanyl overdoses at UNC, three of them in the last two years. Fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of all teen overdose deaths in 2021. That's according to the latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the problem has been following teens onto college campuses, from North Carolina to Texas to California. When an overdose happens, easy access to naloxone can be the difference between life and death. Naloxone is what I call an anti-funeral drug. It's this perfect antidote that really saves people's lives. That's Nabarun Descupta, a research scientist at UNC Chapel Hill School of Public Health. He co-founded the nonprofit Remedy Alliance for the People that supplied all that naloxone in Sullivan's closet. Descupta has been worried about opioid overdoses on campus since 2005, when he was a PhD student at UNC. He remembers telling his professors back then that he wanted to hand out naloxone to students. They told me point blank that if I did that, I'd get kicked out of school. He did it anyway. At the time, Descupta believes naloxone was seen as encouraging drug use. But things have changed. Many of today's college students were born during the opioid crisis and have personal experiences with it. Even like half a generation ago, we wouldn't have had that kind of 
lived experience among undergraduates. Now, Desgupta helps make naloxone more available to grassroots groups, groups like the one Sullivan co-founded with his classmates. It's called the Carolina Harm Reduction Union, and each of its founders has family and friends whose substance use has ranged from full-on addiction to occasional use at parties. I didn't approach my friends who were struggling in the right way. Co-founder Caroline Claude Felter had friends in high school who used drugs to deal with mental health issues. At the time, she took an abstinence-only approach to drug prevention. And got to college here at UNC my freshman year and took a class on the opioid epidemic and learned about harm reduction for the first time. Harm reduction is an approach that accepts some people do use drugs. It focuses on how to keep them safe. Harm reduction to me is also more than just naloxone. It's more than just fentanyl testing strips. It's the support and the acceptance that comes with it. Anyone interested in learning about harm reduction techniques on UNC's campus? The Carolina Harm Reduction Union is holding tabling events on campus this fall to distribute naloxone and spread awareness. Giving out uh, naloxone and fentanyl testing strips if any of y'all would want them. Their goal is for every student to carry naloxone and know how to use it. And what does exactly do? So it will reverse an opioid overdose. So if you see somebody, if you're at a party, if you're at a frat, are you guys freshmen or sophomores? Freshmen, all right. So let's say you're going out to a frat or freshman or frat. It's you can stick it in your pocket. It's easy to just have on you. Also, fentanyl testing strips are good too. In what feels like no time, Sullivan's backpack is empty. We're already out, and it's been, what, like 30-ish minutes? And every half hour they do this is progress toward their goal. For NPR News, I'm Liz Schlemmer in Chapel Hill. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Jeff Bulch. In 1992, over a weekend, Bulch's mother died, and the following Monday was a trash pickup day. I was out front doing some yard work, and a young fellow came up the driveway wheeling a big barrel. I remember he was younger than I, but he grinned and he said, hey, how's Ms. Bulch doing? And I hadn't yet had to tell a stranger. I took a breath And I said, well, she was very sick, and I'm afraid she died a couple of days ago. And he froze. He stammered, I'm so sorry, and he lowered his eyes and hurried away. And I was looking down, too, pretty teary. And when I looked up again, I blinked to see three people coming across our yard. There was a middle-aged man flanked by the young fellow and another young guy. And the older man walked up to me and said, are you Mrs. Balch's son? And we shook, and I said, yes. Well, he said, looking left and right at his crew, then straight back at me, we just want you to know your mom was the nicest person on our route. And all I could manage was a quick thank you, and they walked away. And I'm older now than mom got to be, and I was flashing back to this story last Monday, which is our own trash pickup day. I can't emulate mom's bubbliness as I talk to our collectors, Jose and Josh, but I do see them 
and I try to see them the way the crew chief saw me 30 plus years ago and the way mom saw him and his crew as people worth taking some time for. It's all about, it's all about perceiving the humanity in everyone we're dealing with. And uh, that was the crew chief's gift to me, was to humanize that moment. Jeff Balch lives in Evanston, Illinois. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. As all things considered, fruit farmers in New England and elsewhere are beginning to rethink traditional crops such as apples in large part because of climate change. In the forecast, off and on showers for the next several hours. Tonight could have a few more showers overnight, down around 47 for a low. And tomorrow still damp early in the day before the sunshine moves in. May just make it to 60 degrees. 56 in Boston now at 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. I'm Scott Tong. Documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi profiles January 6th insurrectionists. Yeah, they're the people who threatened her mother, who was then the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. We need to talk to them. We need to listen to them. We need to have a conversation because we want to try to heal. That's here and now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Israel has warned more than a million people to flee their homes in the Gaza Strip ahead of an expected Israeli incursion to eliminate Hamas. Ten days after the militant group waged an unprecedented attack on Israel, a Royal Caribbean ship carrying uh, American citizens has left the Israeli port and is en route to Cyprus now after the State Department made arrangements for the roughly 12-hour journey. American tourist Sandra Dee says her trip was interrupted, but her thoughts remain with the people of Israel. We would love to come back and finish what we didn't get to see. And uh, I feel so much for the people. Excuse me, it makes me tear up so much they're going through. But we're with them. We pray for them every day. 
The U.S. is also trying to get Americans out on charter planes as fighting between the Palestinian militant group Hamas and Israel continues to escalate. Meanwhile, Israel is preparing for a possible ground invasion. Government officials are also warning Israeli citizens to lock down their private security cameras. If hackers gain access, it could compromise Israel's operations. Here's NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. In an online notice, Israel's National Cyber Army is urging private citizens to secure any cameras in their homes to help prevent digital espionage. Devices like baby monitors and security cameras are often connected to the Internet but have no password protection, leaving them vulnerable to hacking. Cyber experts in Israel and around the world have seen this kind of breach before, particularly in Ukraine, as Russia has made use of public cameras to monitor the transport of goods and weapons. After a deadly attack on Israel by Hamas and an ongoing assault on Gaza by Israel, securing vulnerable technology is even more important. While hacking has not played a huge role in the conflict so far, activist groups on both sides are ratcheting up attacks and threats. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she's working with the White House and State Department to get Massachusetts residents out of Gaza. That includes a couple and their toddler from Medway who became trapped in Gaza while visiting family. The family has been stuck at Gaza's border with Egypt for days. Massachusetts' family shelter system is nearing its capacity. Governor Moore Healy says the current level of demand is not sustainable. She says close to 7,000 families are in emergency shelters, and the state cannot handle more than 7,500 families. Healy expects to hit that limit by the end of the month. She says once the number is reached, the state will no longer guarantee that new families will be placed in shelters. We will continue to engage, assess, and serve every family who appeals for help as best we can. Families with high needs, including health and safety risks, will be prioritized for shelter placement. Healy also appointed the former director of the U.S. Air National Guard to lead the statewide emergency shelter system. Boston Medical Center is launching a new pilot program to help patients lower their utility bills. The year-long pilot is called Clean Power Prescriptions. It allows the center providers to write prescriptions for electricity credits using renewable energy. The program uses solar panels mounted on one of the center's buildings to generate the credits. $50 worth of credit will be applied to energy bills of about 80 patients each month. And first night, Boston is moving its main stage to City Hall Plaza this year. The New Year's Eve celebration features ice sculptures and local musicians, artists, and performers. It's usually centered around Copley Square, which is currently under construction. First night, Boston kicks off New Year's Eve at noontime and ends shortly after midnight. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. Scattered showers into the early part of tonight, then turning partly cloudy, about 48 for a low. Tomorrow, isolated showers for the first part of the day, then mainly sunny for the afternoon, 61 tops. 56 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, 
designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Amman, Jordan. Across Jordan on Friday, thousands of people marched in support of Palestinians. This country borders Israel and the occupied West Bank. Gaza is just 90 miles away. For Jordanian Palestinians with family in the Gaza Strip, that distance can feel painfully close and impossibly far, especially now. Last night, I met up with two people who live in Amman and have relatives in the Gaza Strip. Hanan Mohammed is 35, Imad Shawa is 43. We were going to meet in Imad's apartment, but he said his three kids would make too much noise, so his neighbor let us sit in their elegant living room with tea and snacks while the air conditioning purred in the background. It felt so far removed from the chaos, violence, and pain of war. I asked Hanan and Imad what feeling they have experienced most over the last week. Right now, in this moment, when you ask me, it is fear for my loved ones. As you know, there is currently no safe place in Gaza. I actually have never felt this nervous or anxious or scared in my life. One crazy thought that I've been having all throughout this week, how horrible is it when I'm checking the news and then I find that there is a bombing, but it's like a different family name, and I feel relief. I felt relief because it's a different family name. Hmm. Ahmad, what for you has been the primary emotion you felt this last week? I would say it's been pretty confusing um, and it's still fresh. The family that I have there, we're on a WhatsApp group. They keep telling us, don't worry about us, we'll update you. You know, don't keep asking us how we're doing. And they, they give us updates. So you're thinking about them and their children, uh, nephews and nieces and cousins and they're a big group now basically moving together as as one one giant group some of them strangers some of them refugees from different neighborhoods moving south there's there's 50 people in a in a small house that has four mattresses the fact that people don't have reliable electricity so they can't reliably communicate on their phones the way they otherwise would must be excruciating for loved ones who are far away wishing for hourly or daily check-ins to know that their loved ones are safe. Yeah, I mean, it's not even the top of the list of the worries. We're thinking about them, even if they do make it, and if they can even go back, they're going back to neighborhoods that have no more infrastructure. So even if your, your apartment or house is standing, it's, pro, it's, it's among ruins where there's no sanitation, no running water, no electricity, I mean, we're talking millions of people. If you don't mind my asking, I understand you know someone who was killed in Gaza over the last week? Yes, my father's family. Um, I think it was October 8th um, when their house got bombed. There were 18 of them inside with kids and they all died. That was uh, the second day of the aggression and just yesterday 
another thing happened, the same thing. A house got bombed. There were almost 20 people in there. So from my father's family side, um, we know at least 40 who got killed. And from his mother's side, he said uh, probably the same amount. He said everyone speaking in the family here was not able to count them, but there is like a funeral house ongoing for the past three days here in Jordan. And, he, and everyone is speaking that uh, they have, might, have, might have reached above 100. A funeral house where people are just mourning those who've died in Gaza day after day after day as the numbers grow. A funeral house for those who martyred from our family. Just from your family? Just from, yes. I'd like to hear your thoughts about being Jordanian-Palestinian specifically, because we are so geographically close to what is happening, and yet the distance is so great. Tell me what it means to you to sit where we are right now given what's happening. Especially since growing up uh, in Jordan as Palestinian, you know, originally, it was never uh, as encouraged to be too forthcoming, too patriotic for Palestine, growing up in the 80s and 90s for me. There was a, f a lingering feeling of like, are, are we, you know, is, is there a feeling that we're like guests in Jordan, although we are citizens? there is a bit of a separation. It's a very thorny topic um, uh, that would not please any government official listening to a Palestinian Jordanian complain about being in Jordan. <laughs> Hanan, can you tell us what it feels like to you to sit so geographically close to and yet so far removed from the ability to do anything as this situation unfolds, as a Jordanian-Palestinian specifically? To me, I love Jordan. I consider Jordan my country. I love Palestine. I consider Palestine my country. So to me, both are my countries. As people of Palestinian origin, it's actually impossible for us to, to return right now as the occupation stands. And it's extremely hard for us to visit. Um, I managed, thank God, I consider myself blessed that I have managed to see my, life, my country while I'm still alive. So I once entered the West Bank and I once entered Gaza. And uh, it was the best experience of my life. I never felt more serene than I have felt there. I just want to say that one of the ugliest feelings I've ever felt was when I was led back or getting out of there. As you're escorted and you're just on the bus and you're just leaving and you're leaving the entire land behind you, and the people and everything they're going through. And then it felt like I was getting slapped a hundred times on the face, a thousand times on the face, actually. And then suddenly I was back in Amman where everyone was just normal and going to restaurants and going to the mall. And I felt completely dissociated for a week. I couldn't speak to my family. I couldn't just get back to my normal day-to-day -day life. I, it, it was very dissociating. After we've talked about these feelings of powerlessness and confusion and fear and guilt, is there anything you're doing to help with all of that? Is there anything that you have found useful in this last week? In my own nature, I'm not someone who's, who likes to give in to despair. And uh, I'm an activist, I'm an organizer, I am, I've always been a rebel, so I'm always You're someone... wearing an ACDC shirt. <laughs> True. <laughs> That is telling. <laughs> so there is sadness, and there is anger, there is fear, and there is hope. 
and then there is also pride. I am very proud of my people, of their non-stopping resistance, of their resilience. I am super proud of them. We, on the outside, get our strength and our hope from them. Yeah. Hanan Mohammed and Imad Shawa, thank you for sharing your experiences with us. I'm thinking of your families and I hope that they are safe. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Our co-host Ari Shapiro reporting from Amman, Jordan. Tomorrow we visit an Israeli army base where they are identifying bodies from the massacre. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Rite Aid, one of the country's largest pharmacy chains, has filed for bankruptcy. The company is billions of dollars in debt and faces an avalanche of lawsuits linked to prescription opioids. NPR's Brian Mann joins us now. Hey, Brian. Hey, Elsa. So the thing is, in many communities, Rite Aid is like the only pharmacy serving people. So what's going to happen to those stores? Yeah, it's a good question. There are 2,100 of these stores still across 17 states, right? It's already closed about 200 locations, and executives say they are now scrambling to save as many of the remaining stores as they can, but more are certain to close. During a court hearing this afternoon in New Jersey, the company's lawyers uh, acknowledged that if this bankruptcy process doesn't go smoothly and quickly, it could force the entire chain to close. Mm. Okay, well, tell us more about how Rite Aid got into so much financial trouble. Well, the pharmacy business is really cutthroat. Rite Aid is up against big players like CVS and Walgreens and Walmart. And increasingly, they're also up against Amazon for products like shampoo and vitamins. So Rite Aid sales have slumped. Uh, executives now say they're roughly $3.3 billion in debt. And, and as you mentioned, Elsa, they're facing this avalanche of opioid lawsuits. Yeah. Remind us about the role that Rite Aid played in all of that in the opioid crisis. Yeah, the company sold a lot of highly addictive and really profitable opioid pain pills prescribed by doctors. Of course, they weren't alone in this. All the pharmacy chains made big money selling opioids. Most have reached settlements, agreeing to pay billions of dollars in compensation. Rite Aid hasn't managed to work out that kind of deal. And so there are still more than a thousand of these lawsuits. And earlier this year, the Justice Department filed a new federal lawsuit against the company. Rite Aid denies any wrongdoing. Um, And now with this bankruptcy, it's not clear whether people who say they were harmed by Rite Aid's behavior, it's unclear whether they'll get any compensation. Hmm. And Rite Aid isn't the first company that's filed for Chapter 11 related to the opioid crisis, right? Yeah, that's right. The whole industry has been hit by this. Uh, Rite Aid is the first pharmacy chain to file for bankruptcy, but we've seen a bunch of other drug companies forced to reorganize. Purdue Pharma, of course, they're in bankruptcy. The drug makers Endo and Insys and Mallinckrodt, they've all sought Chapter 11 protection. Well, as significant as these bankruptcies are, we just can't talk about the opioid, opioid crisis without talking about the millions of people affected by it across the country. So where do things stand now on that front? Well, I have to say things are getting worse. The latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found more than 112,000 drug deaths in the latest 12-month period here in the U.S. It's the highest toll of fatal overdoses ever. The big culprit now is street fentanyl, this synthetic opioid produced by the Mexican drug cartels. But it's important to say the U.S. medical industry is still prescribing vastly more pain pills than other countries. Those medications are still killing a lot of Americans, nearly 17,000 fatal overdoses from prescription pills every year. 
ensuing Rite Aid earlier this year, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a statement saying the Justice Department plans to hold companies accountable for the opioid epidemic that's killing Americans. Well, with respect to Rite Aid, what happens next for the company? Well, again, the attorneys say they have to move fast through Chapter 11 if any part of the company is to survive. And as you mentioned, these pharmacies provide essential services for a lot of neighborhoods, about 45,000 jobs on the line. So a lot at stake over the next few months as this bankruptcy moves forward. That is NPR's Brian Mann. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour, Smokey Robinson, who's 83 years old, has now hit it big. He's performing on NPR's Tiny Desk Concert. That's coming up at about 20 past 5 o'clock. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Stepping Stone, directly supporting Boston students since 1990 and until all have access to earn a college degree. Learn more at steppingstone.org. The Palestinian Health Ministry says 2,800 people have been killed in Gaza since the fighting with Israel began. An Israeli ground invasion into Gaza is expected to begin soon. Follow all the developments here at the start of each hour at 90.9 WBUR. Gray skies for the remainder of the day, off and on showers. Could have a few more showers overnight tonight, down around 47. Tomorrow, still damp early in the day, but then the sunshine breaks through, could make it to just about 60. 56 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 449. WBUR supporters include Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Burton's Grill and Bar, with scratch kitchens customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston. Burton'sGrill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. According to exit polls, Poland's current ruling party, the right-wing Law and Justice Party, didn't secure enough votes in yesterday's election to remain in government. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports that it represents a stunning demand by Polish voters for change. Relief. That's the first word Eva Betkowska says came to her mind when she saw the initial results of yesterday's election. I'm 72 years old, she tells me, so I've lived through a lot. But I don't remember a time, not even during the Soviet years, as bad as the last eight years of law and justice running this country. When asked if she was surprised by the election results, Petkovska says yes, but not in the way most here are surprised. I'm surprised they did so well, she says, considering how many corruption scandals their government was involved in. How could their voters remain loyal to them through all of that? The most recent one involved the resignation of a deputy foreign minister caught profiting from the sale of visas to migrants. The very migrants law and justice typically rail against in their speeches. 
Despite the scandal, Law & Justice was the party that received the most votes, according to exit polling, around 36%, but it wouldn't have enough allies to form a government. But don't tell that to 88-year-old Alexander Goretzka. I feel good about the election results, says Goretzka. I voted for Law & Justice, and I was happy to see them win the election. She admits they might not have enough votes to govern, but she hopes once the final results come in, they might be able to pick up more seats in parliament. Goretzko says she voted for law and justice because she doesn't want any more migrants coming to Poland. If the opposition ends up governing Poland, she says, I worry about the homeland and our national sovereignty. If they gain power, they'll just do whatever Germany or the European Union will tell them to. For voter Maja Jankowska, integrating Poland more into the EU is a good thing. I've heard so many women saying that they're scared of having children here. The 22-year-old says if Law and Justice had one, she would have moved away to Denmark or Germany, where she thinks education levels are higher. I feel like uh, if we continue to be ruled by this government, we are going to be less and less educated. I can see where they are going, since they're kind of uh, religious, they're uh, Catholics and the Catholic is all against even birth controls. Jankowska says the abortion ban law and justice's government instituted in 2020 had a deep impact on her and her friends, and they took to the streets of Warsaw along hundreds of thousands of others to protest it. And that was about the time that political analyst Adam Tracek noticed a change in popular support for law and justice, known inside of Poland by its acronym PEACE. And we have seen that after the protests, after, after the ban, uh, two years ago, uh, the Peace Party never recovered. Turnout was a record 73%, with some voters waiting in line until 3 in the morning. Surprising political analysts like Andrzej Bobinski of Politica Insight. And there was this, you know, atmosphere of a party and people handing out pizza and, and bringing coffee and tea and, and keeping themselves warm, etc. So, yeah, it looked like the rebirth of Polish civil society. And while Bobinski says a new government will have a lot of difficult work ahead of them, this party-like atmosphere of change and hope should keep many Polish voters warm throughout the coming winter. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Warsaw. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston has a theater company that puts on productions you won't find anywhere else. It's dedicated to presenting Asian-American stories in two languages. Its founder is Allison Chu, who's one of 10 local artists we're profiling this week. WBUR's Solon Kelleher went to a rehearsal and heard Chu limber up with the Chinese Mandarin equivalent of She Sells Seashells. Here's his report. Walk through the halls of Boston Center for the Arts, where Tron stage rehearses, and you may hear vocal warm-ups that sound like this. That's a Mandarin tongue twister coming out the mouth of Allison Chu. They're the founder of Tron Stage, the country's first theater company dedicated to telling Asian-American stories bilingually and transculturally. Chu is a 26-year-old queer Chinese-American immigrant, and although they're now leading this grassroots Boston theater company, their story begins in northeastern China, where Chu first fell in love with American storytelling. James Taylor, Alison Cross, Dixie Chicks, The Carpenters, and of course, very early on Taylor Swift era. There's a story, there's a person, there's basically a whole life behind every single story, uh, every single song. In music, I was able to see the other side of the world that I've never been to. 
But listening alone wasn't enough for Chu, who from half a world away felt beckoned by the likes of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River. Chu wanted to be an American country music singer. When I was about 12, I started to beg my parents to let me go to the U.S. for high school. And then eventually, after two years, they actually let me. Chu moved to Tennessee to be close to Nashville in the music scene. But coming to the United States made Chu see themselves in an entirely new way. I saw myself as Asian for the very first time. Because, you know, when you're China, everybody else looked like you. I landed and I realized, oh, I'm different. Chu started auditioning for school plays, getting small parts as they were still learning English. When a teacher asked Chu to compose music for a production of Almost Maine, they had a breakthrough. It was one of the few times that I felt like, you know, this I probably actually belong to this. I felt like I felt like a director. I felt like I felt like I had control. I had, felt like I had a voice for once. Chu enrolled in a BFA program at Emerson. And when they were struggling to see themselves represented, they launched Tron Stage to tell stories by and for the greater Asian American community in Boston. I saw myself like I'm a bilingual creative. I can direct. I do dramaturgy. What am I equipped of to offer to the community to change the situation? Five years in, Tron Stage's mission is to cultivate joyful and challenging Asian American stories that pioneer a new activism in the arts. And maintaining that type of community takes work. So this is where we rehearse. Right now, today, we're in for some Asian American Playwrights Collective Playfest. Chu lets the playwrights determine how a story should intertwine Mandarin and English. Last year, Tron Stage put on a dark comedy. The company performed the same show over two weekends, one weekend in English and the other in Mandarin. Here, a cast rehearses in English for a story about the busing of Chinese-American students to schools outside of Chinatown. We have no choice. We're not in China anymore. I know. We can speak out here, even if we don't know English. That's actors Jenny Lee and Mordecai Choi. As a Korean-American actor, Lee recalls searching for opportunities in Boston. And so I was deep diving on the internet. I was looking into, like, is there, like, Asian-American theater in Boston? And literally everything I could find had Allison's name on it. It was like, Allison, Allison, Allison. I was like, who is this woman? She's incredible. Only a few years after arriving in America and giving up on their dream of country music, Chu still tells American stories, just in the form of theater rather than music. At Tron Stage, those stories are an opportunity to build a sense of community. We're hoping to change who gets to see American theater, who gets to feel belonging and joy and being community with each other in the theater spaces. For Chu, it's important that audiences walk away from a Tron Stage show feeling Boston has a place for Asian American immigrants and the dreams they bring with them, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Music makes pictures and often tells stories. All of it Country boy John Denver, one of Allison Chu's favorite artists growing up in China. To read more about Chu and to see more of the artists we're featuring this week, visit WBUR.org. And tomorrow morning, listen for our story on a painter whose murals give residents of Roxbury a sense of belonging. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From EasyCater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, presenting an evening with Audra McDonald, October 22nd at Symphony Hall. You can learn more at CelebritySeries.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says a border crossing between Egypt and Gaza will reopen humanitarian aid for Palestinians. We're putting in place with the United Nations, with Egypt, with Israel, the mechanism by which to get the assistance in to the people who need it. Today is Monday, October 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story also ahead. House Republicans have selected Representative Jim Jordan as their nominee for Speaker of the House. Jordan was once a far-right outsider. Now he's a far-right insider. By the end of this month, there may be no more room at Massachusetts family shelters. 7,000 families are now in emergency housing. Once there are 500 more, the state says it can no longer guarantee them a home. These stories and rock and roll legend Smokey Robinson at NPR's tiny desk for a concert. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Israel, hotels are sheltering survivors from the communities that suffered the biggest losses in the recent Hamas attacks. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from one hotel in central Israel that's hosting hundreds of survivors from one village. Survivors here are hugging. They're gathering in front of an easel, listing 13 upcoming funerals. These are all residents from the same Kibbutz, Kfar Aza, a communal village. It was home to about a thousand residents, but now it's mostly destroyed after the Hamas attacks. Hundreds of survivors are here. They are meeting with trauma therapists and they're gathering for Shiva, the traditional Jewish mourning ritual. Residents say so far they've held about 50 funerals. 20 residents are being held hostage in Gaza. Others are missing. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Shvaim Israel. A ship carrying U.S. citizens has left the Israeli port, and it's en route to Cyprus. The State Department arranged the seaborne evacuation for Americans wanting to flee the fighting. NPR's Jackie Northam has more from Jerusalem. The U.S. citizens and their immediate family members boarded a Royal Caribbean cruise ship at the northern port of Haifa for the roughly 12-hour journey to Cyprus. All those on board had to sign a promissory note to pay for the trip. They're also responsible for arranging their own accommodations and onward passage. All pets had to be left behind. The U.S. is also trying to get Americans out on charter planes as fighting between the militant group Hamas and Israel continues. There are concerns the conflict could engulf other regional players, such as Hezbollah in Lebanon. Israel announced it planned to evacuate more than two dozen villages close to the Lebanese border. 
Jackie Northam, NPR News, Jerusalem. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan says he's feeling really good ahead of an expected vote on a new speaker tomorrow. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the House is gearing up to elect a new leader two weeks after Kevin McCarthy was ousted from the top post. Speaking to reporters, Congressman Jordan said it's time for the House to get back to business. We will go to the floor tomorrow. we got to have the speaker. You can open the House and do the work of the American people and help our dearest and closest friend Israel if you don't have a speaker. Jordan is a favorite of the far-right Freedom Caucus, but he's still scrambling to convince a group of Republican holdouts to support his bid, telling them it would be far better to vote for him than be forced to compromise with Democrats. The congressman needs at least 217 votes to secure the gavel, but it's still unclear whether he has the support to become the next leader. Without a speaker, legislative business on the House floor remains on hold. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow gained 314 points. That's up nearly 1 percent. The Nasdaq was up 160 points. That's up 1.2 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Massachusetts family is among the hundreds of thousands of people stuck in Gaza while Israel prepares a ground offensive against Hamas. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports that the family from Medway has made it to the Egyptian border with Gaza as negotiations continue over the departure of Palestinian Americans. Wafa Abu Zayda describes the situation at the border as chaos. She, her husband, and their one-year-old made it to the Rafa border over the weekend when they were told some Americans might be able to cross into Egypt. But the border remains closed. In a message this morning, Abu Zayda says the family waited for hours today and were not able to cross. Sammy Nabolsi is a Boston attorney and family friend. For me, today is like a do-or-die situation for this family and the other American families that are there. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional, but this is insane. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's office says it is, quote, gutting that people have not been able to leave Gaza. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts will not guarantee placement for families in the state shelter system once the shelters reach capacity. That's expected to happen later this month. The system can house up to 7,500 families. Nearly 7,000 are currently in the system. The increase is driven largely by newly arriving migrant families. Governor Moore Healy announced the change in protocol today. She says her administration will now give housing priority to families who face health and safety risks. Several aides to Cambridge Mayor Sambul Siddiqui are accusing her of creating a toxic workplace environment. The Boston Globe reports that eight women who have worked for her since 2017 have made the accusations. They claim the mayor berated them for making small mistakes, commented on their bodies, and retaliated against some of them who accepted new jobs. A Cambridge spokesperson has not yet responded to WBR's request for comment. 57 degrees in the Boston area, lots of gray out there. Overnight tonight, a few more showers, about 47 for a low. For tomorrow, maybe some drizzle early in the day, then sunshine by the afternoon should make it to just about 60. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters October 20th. Rated R. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Israel continues airstrikes across Gaza in response to a Hamas attack that killed more than 1,400 people last week. Meanwhile, Hamas is holding nearly 200 people, including children, hostage. It is still firing rockets toward Israel. And in Gaza, where more than 2,800 people have been killed, a humanitarian crisis is unfolding. And Piers Abatrawi joins us now from Jerusalem. And Aya, I know it's it's very difficult to get into Gaza, but you are able to talk to people there. What are you hearing about conditions? I'm hearing about a number of crises unfolding right now for Gaza's 2.3 million residents. The first crisis is water. The taps have run dry. Israel has put Gaza under total siege, which means nothing is coming in and no one can leave. Today, we heard the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees say most of its shelters, where hundreds of thousands of people are displaced, don't have any more clean water. Families in Gaza are now relying on potentially contaminated water, even seawater. I reached NPR producer Anas Baba in Gaza, and I asked him if anyone's able to clean or wash themselves. No, you need to, you need just to forget showering and forget anything that's like the laundry or even the, uh, uh, washing the dishes. And uh, when it comes to the food, okay, we only have sandwiches. That's what we have. We didn't cook anymore. So no drinking water available, no tap water. And now Gaza's main power plant shut down last week, and the territory is relying on whatever fuel was left in generators. But that is especially dangerous for hospitals. Here's what Jan Larke, a spokesperson for the UN Relief Agency, told me today about that. That is, of course, an enormous crisis if hospitals simply have to click the switch and turn off life-saving equipment for the patients who are still there. So what he's saying is that hospitals that are handling more than 9,000 wounded people are expected to run out of power, fuel, and electricity tonight. Okay, so meanwhile, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in Israel. He's been all around the region in recent days doing shuttle diplomacy. Is he making any progress, Aya, either either in getting aid into Gaza or trying to de-escalate the war? Well, there are hundreds of trucks right now in Egypt waiting at the Rafah border crossing with Gaza that are carrying fuel and aid. The U.S. and other Western governments would also like that border crossing to open for some of their citizens trapped in Gaza to get out. But here's what Anthony Blinken told reporters today about where things stand. We're putting in place with the United Nations, with Egypt, with Israel, with others, the mechanism by which to get the assistance in and to get it to the people who need it. So while they're talking about these mechanisms, uh, we have the roads destroyed in many areas and a ceasefire that would need to come into place to be agreed upon for the aid to get in. And Israel's prime minister's office said this morning there's no such deal in place. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled south of Gaza to the south of Gaza after warnings from Israel. They were on foot with kids uh, packed into cars, but many also can't leave. And even in the south, there are still airstrikes there that have killed families in their homes. And Palestinians say close to 900 children have been killed in Gaza. And timeline? What is Israel saying about how long this war could take? 
Well, Israel's prime minister said this war is going to take time and it's only the beginning of its response to the attacks. And we know there are hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops at the border with Gaza preparing for an imminent ground invasion. Emotions here are still very raw. In uh -huh. particular, families are grieving and shocked. But look, Israel says it is going to wipe out Hamas. And now the question is whether this war and ground troops can eliminate Hamas and how much that will endanger the two million Palestinians still in Gaza. And Piers Abatrawi reporting in Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you. Today, mourners gathered at a mosque for prayer before the burial of a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy. He was fatally stabbed in his home in Illinois on Saturday. His mother was also stabbed and seriously injured. The family's landlord now faces multiple charges, including murder and attempted murder. WBEZ's Anna Savchenko has been following this story and joins us now. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So this stabbing, it happened in an unincorporated township outside of Chicago. Today's prayer service, I know, occurred in a nearby Chicago suburb. And I understand you're standing outside the mosque where the service took place. What has it been like there today? Uh, well, dozens gathered here outside the mosque today. Some of them were waving Palestinian flags. And the atmosphere ahead of uh, the prayer that was held here was just very somber, and people were visibly upset. And what have people been saying to you We're at the service? Oh, there are a lot of uh, Muslim faith leaders here today that were addressing the crowd before the prayer, and they decried the attack as a senseless act of violence. And they also decried the media's role in fanning tensions from the war between Israel and Hamas uh, and tensions that police say motivated the attack on the little boy and his mother. Well, as we mentioned, police have arrested a suspect, the family's landlord, who mm -hmm. apparently faces several charges, right? What do we know about him and his personal relationship with the mother and son? Well, we know that uh, the police found him sitting outside of the driveway of the residence where this all happened. Uh, we don't know much else about him, but the Council on American-Islamic Relations held a press conference yesterday, and Ahmed Rehab, who runs their Chicago office, he said um, that the parents never suspected that their son could possibly be in danger uh, with this person, and here's what he had to say. The father says that he had built a treehouse for the boy and allowed him to swim in a makeshift pool and brought him toys. But it wasn't until he started watching the news and hearing the statements that something changed. So that's Rehab there talking about how what he says is biased media coverage, which helped shape Zuba's perception of the boy and his mother, unfortunately. And we know that the suspect had a short appearance in court today and that he was assigned a public defender. Okay. And what do we know about the condition of the mother at this moment? Uh, we know that she was taken to the hospital in a very serious condition after the incident. And the latest that we have heard is that doctors expect her to fully recover. Now, this tragedy has prompted a response from a lot of people throughout the country, including from federal and state officials. Can you talk about what they have been saying? Yeah, yeah. The mayor of Chicago and the governor of Illinois have both condemned the hate crime. So has President Joe Biden. Uh, but the people who came to the mosque today, they are still upset. Um, they're upset by what they're calling one-sided remarks on the Israel-Hamas war from the White House. And they really want to see that changed. That is WBEZ's Anna Savchenko. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for having me.
House Republicans have nominated Ohio Republican Jim Jordan to serve as the next Speaker of the House. In recent years, he has become a significant force in the party. Now he says he is picking up the support he needs to win the job. I feel real good about the momentum we have, and I think we're, we're real close. So the vote's going to be tomorrow. That is Jordan talking to CNN today. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins me now. Hey there. Hey there. Hey there. So Jordan's sounding pretty confident. But for those of us watching the speakers race closely, this is not our first rodeo. It's just, does it actually look like he will be elected tomorrow? He could. It's going to be close. I mean, he needs 217 votes if all 221 House Republicans show up and vote on the House floor. Jordan won the nomination inside the House Republican conference on Friday, but he did face some stiff resistance from some of his colleagues. He's been meeting one-on-one -on -one with them. His allies have really been waging a very public campaign to support him on social media, on conservative news outlets. Those allies emphasize that President, uh, former President Donald Trump endorsed Jordan. He's very popular with the GOP base. One big factor to think about in terms of tomorrow's vote is that it's a public roll call vote, unlike the secret ballot that happened on Friday. And if he doesn't win on the first ballot, we could see multiple ballots. Yeah, like we saw earlier in the year. Okay, so I'm thinking about Jim Jordan's trajectory. Jordan started out as an outsider. He is now on the verge maybe of being second in line to the president. How do you get here? I mean, it's a really dramatic political arc over the last 15 years. Jordan was really considered to be sort of the far right of the Republican conference. Now he's really a barometer of where the party is. He was elected in 2006 after serving as a state legislator. When he came to Congress, he became immediately critical of his own leadership, arguing they weren't conservative enough. He clashed repeatedly with then Speaker John Boehner. He was part of a group pushing to defund Obamacare back in 2013, and that fight led to a government shutdown. In 2015, Jordan was one of the co-founders of the House Freedom Caucus, a far-right group. That group ended up driving Boehner out as speaker that year. I remember. Uh, you mentioned Trump's endorsement of Jordan. What is the relationship between those two these days? Trump and Jordan are pretty close. I mean, Jordan really gained a national profile when he became the leading voice defending Trump in the first impeachment inquiry back in 2019, 2020. In terms of the 2020 election, Jim Jordan was part of a group of House Republicans that were in touch with the White House discussing this plan to block certification of the electoral votes in some of those key states on January 6th. There's a lot of evidence about his role in that plot in the select uh, January 6th committee's report. Jordan actually spoke to then-President Trump on January 6th. He was subpoenaed by the select committee, but he never cooperated with that committee. House Democrats argue if he's elected speaker, Jordan could be a threat to democracy. And and just quickly speak to the issues, Deirdre, things like aid to Ukraine or Israel or avoiding a, a shutdown. Uh, where is Jim Jordan on the issues that are going to face the next speaker? Well, Jordan has voted repeatedly against sending more money to Ukraine. House Republicans are sort of split down the middle on that issue. He does back an aid package for Israel. He says that would be a top priority if he gets the gavel. In terms of funding the government, whoever the next speaker is has this November 17th deadline to avoid a shutdown. So if it's Jordan, he's going to have to negotiate with Democrats to get a bill through. That's quite a turnaround from someone who usually has been attacking those deals. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A cemetery in New York City is filled mostly with bodies that are unclaimed and unidentified. But composer Noah Krzyzewski is there by choice. The idea seemed very meaningful to him. The simplicity, the anonymity, the humility. That story and much more coming up on All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums with the new exhibition, Objects of Addiction, Opium, Empire, and the Chinese Art Trade, now on view, harvardartmuseums.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. A big upswing on Wall Street today. The Dow rose nearly a full percent. S&P picked up more than a full percent. The Nasdaq finished up one and two-thirds percent. The Rite Aid drugstore chain is filing for bankruptcy. The company has seven stores in Massachusetts, including pharmacies in Revere, Fall River, and New Bedford. Rite Aid says the Chapter 11 filing is an attempt to offset years of annual losses and opioid-related lawsuits. Customers will still be able to fill prescriptions and shop online or in person as Rite Aid goes through the bankruptcy process. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Dark gray is the color for the late afternoon. We should have off and on showers tonight. We could have a few more showers down around 47 for a low. Tomorrow still damp early in the day, but then sunshine by the afternoon may just make it to 60. 56 degrees in Boston at 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Smokey Robinson was watching a video online. It was a performance by a much younger artist who he's gotten to know and work with in recent years, the singer, rapper, multi-instrumentalist Anderson Pack. I call him my nephew. He calls me Uncle Smoke, you know. <laughs> and uh, he was going to come on in, so I saw him, and I was wondering, why is he playing that little office <laughs> like this? You know, what's, what's up with that? That office is also our office. The video was from Anderson Pack's Tiny Desk Concert. That's where musicians, known and unknown, play stripped-down concerts. And that starts the chain of communications, which results in Smokey Robinson, who has at this point played just about every other type of venue there is to play in music, singing from behind a cubicle at his own Tiny Desk Concert. I've never played anything like this, ever. That's why I was looking so forward. You know, we've been talking about this for a long time. Quiet storm. 
Smokey Robinson, who is now 83 years old, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. The first time as a solo act who did and still does a sultry, slow-burning vibe so well that an entire R&B subgenre was named after his song, Quiet Storm. The second time was as the lead singer and songwriter of The Miracles. That's the first group that Barry Gordy took on when he started the record label that became Motown. After his performance, I asked Smokey Robinson, after such a long career, how often he writes music today? Uh, it's, it's whenever it comes, you know. I don't write like um, I need to go somewhere and isolate myself or something like that, or and I'm going to take these two weeks to go write. It just comes. It's just there. It's, you know, it's just I write all the time. Your new album is called Gasms, and it's it's sensual, dare I say even a little sexual. <laughs> you have been writing so many songs across your career about love and lust and romance and intimacy. We fit together perfectly. We've come to meeting. What do you want the audience to feel when we are hearing those songs? What drives you to keep coming back to that well of topics? Well, I, I, I think that love is probably the most important subject you can write about, really. It's, it's the most, uh, it's, it's the greatest emotion that we have as people. You know, uh, love tops everything. Love is the, is the catalyst, you know. We should all learn it. If everybody did, we'd have a much better planet. <laughs> I mean, there's this perception in this country that when you reach a certain age, you stop feeling some of these feelings. You stop talking about intimacy. We're very hushed about all of this. I don't want to reach that age. <laughs> you haven't gotten there yet. No, 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 no. I don't, want, I don't want to reach that age. We dedicate this one to all the ladies. You know, no, I don't, I don't want to get to the point where love is unimportant or, or I, I don't, I don't uh, think that women are attractive or I don't, I don't want to get there. Well, we just heard you dedicate a song to the ladies, so clearly that's not the case. Yeah, uh, you know, it's um, I, I can't imagine being that way. <laughs> you know, I, I think that you know, age is a frame of mind, and it's going how you feel. Cause I feel forty. I love you, yes, I love you. I guess, my dear, that's why I need you. But I, I'm, I'm very blessed and very happy. To have lived for this long and to have had my life be something that was my impossible dream as a kid. Here's one that um, I wrote with Stevie Wonder. I mean, I'm a person who grew up in my mom's kitchen back home, steeped in Motown. So I have to ask you, as you're thinking about the foundation that you played in Motown and looking at the music landscape of today, do you think there could ever be anything like Motown again? Do you see it? No, I don't. I think that Motown was a once-in-a-lifetime musical event, really, you know? None had been like that before that time. And I doubt seriously if anything like that will ever happen again. What made it so special? Um, I, well, first of all, see, if you're going to talk about that for me, I, my answer to that is, first of all, Barry Gordy. You know, Barry Gordy's my best friend. And uh, uh, for, for a dude who, with a high school education to pull off something like Motown, you know, that, that's a special guy. You know, back in those days when he, Motown got started, you know, uh, a lot of the red companies were run by attorneys or other guys who had money and they just wanted to get into as a novelty or something like that in the record companies. And very few of them were run by music men. 
but we were. At this point in your career, what keeps you going? What makes you so excited about the music still today? I, I can't find anything in life that I love like this. You know, people say, well, how come you ain't retired and go somewhere, you know? I tried it. I tried retiring. You did? Didn't work for me. <laughs> you know, I, I can't find anything that, that I'd rather be doing work-wise other than this. When you have a job that you look forward to going to and you can't wait to get there, that, that, that's a blessing. So I'm blessed. That's a real gift. But in terms of the music, is there a direction you want to explore? Are there things that are inspiring you? Uh, music itself inspires me, you know, so I don't know what's going to come. Like I said, I don't know. It just comes, so I have no idea what's going to come to me next musically, but music itself. The way is clear. I love music. I love all kinds of music. I, you know, I grew up in a home where I heard every kind of music you can think of all day of my life. You know, I had two older sisters. They played jazz and bebop. You know, my mom played the Five Blind Boys and the Ward Singers and all those gospel groups. And then some days she would just play Muddy Waters and B.B. King and the blues and all that. And then sometimes she would play Bach and Beethoven and Chopin and stuff. You know, so I had a great dose of music growing up. And I love all kinds of music. Smokey Robinson, thank you for coming to the Tiny Desk, and thanks for talking to us on All Things Considered. Well, I thank the Tiny Desk, because like I said, we've been looking so forward to coming here doing this, and we had a ball. It was, it was so much fun. The music is playing love, love. And you can watch Smokey Robinson's Tiny Desk concert now at nprmusic.org. Baby, tonight. Fifty-five thousand six hundred forty-six people went to a football stadium yesterday for a women's college basketball game, setting a new attendance record for NCAA women's basketball. The University of Iowa Hawkeyes defeated the DePaul University Blue Demons in a preseason exhibition. Caitlin Clark unloads from the end zone. Caitlin Clark led Iowa to victory, and Coach Lisa Bluter addressed the crowd. Nowhere, nowhere in the country could this happen, except for at the University of Iowa. Something else that only happens at the University of Iowa? The Hawkeye Wave. That is when everyone, athletes, coaches, staff, and the thousands of fans in the stands wave to the young patients and their families watching the action through the windows of the children's hospital next to the field. And this time, that wave of hope and support came with a significant bonus for the hospital, a check for a quarter million dollars from the game's proceeds. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents' Family Favorite Award, Educating Toddler to Grade 8. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And AAFCPAs, Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for Nonprofits, Commercial Companies, and Individuals. AAFCPA.com. 
I'm Scott Tong. Documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi profiles January 6th insurrectionists. Yeah, they're the people who threatened her mother, who was then the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. We need to talk to them. We need to listen to them. We need to have a conversation because we want to try to heal. That's here and now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Iran is warning Israel that it will expand the scope of the war if Israeli forces carry out a ground invasion into Gaza. As NPR's Arizu Rezvani tells us, Iran has a history of supporting several proxy militia groups in that region. Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdolian, said in a tweet today that Israel's ground invasion of Gaza would lead to a, quote, probable spread of war in other fronts. Iran has long trained, armed, and supported several proxy groups in the region, from Gaza to Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq. Hezbollah, the Iran-backed militant group in Lebanon, has already fired a volley of rockets into Israel. His comments came soon after the foreign minister visited Lebanon, where he said Iran would unleash a, quote, huge earthquake on Israel if it continues its operations in Gaza. Since Hamas militants breached several towns in Israel, Israeli forces have launched a relentless wave of airstrikes, imposed a complete siege of Gaza, barring food, fuel, water, and electricity from entering, and appear to be mobilizing for a ground invasion. Arzu Razvani, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Nearly half a million health care workers here in California will get a pay raise uh, next year, as we hear from Nicole Nixon. The wage increases will happen gradually, allowing more time for smaller hospitals and clinics. But by 2028, all healthcare workers in California, from medical and nursing assistants to janitors and food service workers, will make at least $25 an hour. The legislation represents a deal between hospitals and labor groups who say the pay increases will largely benefit women and workers of color. It's the second industry-specific wage hike the state's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, approved this year amid a rising cost of living. Fast food workers at large chains will get 20 bucks an hour beginning next spring. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. Stocks rebounded on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts is reckoning with an overload of families who need a place to live. Today, the governor said that once the state places a total of 7,500 families in the shelter system, it can no longer guarantee shelter for any more families. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, the state expects to reach that limit by the end of this month. There are currently 6,945 households in the state-funded family shelter system. Over the past year, the caseload has more than doubled. A large part of the growth is driven by migrant families, many from Haiti, arriving in the state. Governor Maura Healy says the state can't secure more housing and will create a wait list. Families with high needs, including health and safety risks, will be prioritized for shelter placement. Healy has appointed a new person to lead the system and says her administration's focus is on helping shelter residents find work so they can exit the system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. A federal judge has rejected lawsuits by two fishing groups that challenged federal environmental approvals for a wind farm off Martha's Vineyard. The Vineyard Wind Project consists of 62 turbines installed a mile away from each other. 
Reuters reports that the fishing groups had argued that the turbines could cut them off from valuable fishing areas and harm marine species. The judge found that the groups had not adequately demonstrated potential harm to their businesses. Watertown High School's field hockey team has shattered a national record that stood for nearly a quarter century. The Raiders beat Melrose last week for its 33rd straight shutout. Watertown had not given up a goal since September of last year. The previous record for a field hockey team holding other teams scoreless was 32, set during the 1998-1999 seasons by a team in Garden City, New York. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com and Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. A dank end to the day today. Showers could continue for a few more hours. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy, about 48 for a low. And for tomorrow, drizzle for the first part of the day, sunshine for the afternoon, highs about 61. 56 degrees in Boston now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Hart Island is a mile-long strip of land in the waters off New York City. Since 1869, more than a million people have been buried there in mass graves with no headstones. Today, we continue a new series from Radio Diaries called The Unmarked Graveyard. Each story untangles mysteries about people buried in America's largest public cemetery, the lives they lived, the people they left behind. Neil Harris was last seen in Inwood, New York on December 12th. So many questions, man. So many questions. You can't help but wonder what her life has been. I never went back and I never looked well again. Today's story is about Noah Krzyzewski. Krzyzewski was a composer who wrote experimental electronic music. He called it hyperrealism. He died a few years ago at the age of 75. But before he died, he made a surprising decision. His husband, David Sachs, tells the story. My name is David Sachs. I was the husband of the late Noah Krzyzewski. We lived together for 42 years. He was always lighthearted and interested in, in everything. And we agreed with so much. We found the same movies funny. We read the same books. It was just a remarkably satisfying relationship. So I was lucky. And I'm so glad that I have his music. These are all his CDs. I think I will start with this piece. And when I first knew him, he was doing what we call uh, field recordings. He would go out with a tape recorder and, and tape sounds and so on. takes sounds that we have all heard and all known and 
plays with them a little bit, stretches them, integrates them with other sounds. He loved walking down the street in Manhattan and where you could hear languages not only that you didn't speak, but that you didn't even recognize. The idea of a sound you couldn't quite identify, you just squint and squint your ears, you know what I'm saying? Let me just play one more thing, if I may. Awake. This one is called Sleeping Awake. As he got older, I mean, the music became a little bit more serious. In other words, a little bit less playful. The way life becomes a little bit less playful as you get older. You become more and more aware of the inevitable termination that will await us all. So this was the last piece that Noah completed. I think just before he knew he was sick. No one knew he was going to die for several months. He had bladder cancer, and he um, declined to have his bladder removed. He was 75, and he thought this was the beginning of a slope, and he didn't want to go down it. And I remember the surgeon was stunned because no one had ever declined. Everyone wanted to grapple for every minute of life. So anyway, we knew for a while that he was going to die. But we didn't know at that time whether he would live three more weeks, three more months, three more days, three more hours. We didn't know. We tried not to talk too much about death because he didn't want to um, see me crying or see me upset. And so I had to um, put on a happy face. Everything is, is honky-dory. But he, we did talk about what he wanted to happen to his remains after he died. The options are always the traditional burial, I mean, the way one's parents had uh, a family plot. But nothing seemed to him more vulgar than fetishizing death with real estate. You know, a stone, a marker, a mausoleum. He just didn't want a part of it. And then, as we were looking at various options, I, I guess we first learned about Hart Island during the pandemic. So the idea of being buried collectively in a, in a, what they used to call a pauper's grave, seemed very meaningful to him. And the more we talked about it, the more it seemed appealing, you know? The simplicity, the anonymity, the humility, and it was on the water, which he loved. For someone who was such an egalitarian, who believed genuinely in everyone's equality, it was the right decision for him. And we didn't tell anyone, we didn't discuss it with anyone. I remember when the hospice nurse, who was wonderful, uh, was very uh, upset when she learned he was going to be buried in Hart Island. She had this idea that it was not decent, it was just like a garbage dump for only the unknown, who no one cared about. But she came to realize the meaningfulness of his decision. A lot of people, I think, look at death as a kind of way to extend your ego, your, either your monument or the way in which you're buried. And ego stops with death. We had a wonderful time, three more months. 
and then he got too weak. He became delirious. And not the kind of delirium like when you're high or drunk, you know, festive and funny, but the sad kind, you know, where you don't know who you are. It, it, it was hard, man. It was hard. At the very end, I had been up several nights with him, you know, I was tired. We went to sleep together, kissed him goodnight, told him I loved him, as I did every day for the previous 42 years. And um, in the morning, he was dead. You know when someone is dead, it's not only that you poke them and they don't get up, but you know, you have the feeling that that person is dead. And it was quiet for a long time. And then I was left alone in the apartment. And um, that was how it ended. I still find it very difficult, even though it's been two years, I find it difficult. You know, I, I wake up sometimes and I see he's not in the bed with me. And my first instinct is to call to him, assuming he's in the other room. And then I realize, more or less quickly, that no, he's not there. And that hits you sometimes like a ton of bricks. He's not in the other room or in another city. He's not anywhere. And then, almost immediately, a more calming realization sinks in. Well, he's everywhere. That was David Sachs, with music by his late husband, Noah Kruszewski. Our story was produced by the team from Radio Diaries. To hear more stories in this series, visit the Radio Diaries podcast. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. In Los Angeles, a physician accused of sexually assaulting hundreds of patients at the University of Southern California has died. A trial was expected to start next year on charges related to some of those cases, but now his accusers say his death has allowed him to avoid justice. From L.A., Saul Gonzalez of member station KQED reports. In 2018, the University of Southern California was rocked when women came forward accusing the school's longtime student health gynecologist, George Tyndall, of sexually abusing them in incidents dating back decades. While studying law at USC in the early 1990s, Audrey Nofziger was one of Tyndall's patients. I'm a completely changed person because of it. Nofziger says that Tyndall sexually abused her by touching her in a non-medical way and taking photos of her body. We trust doctors. I trusted him. I didn't understand that everything he had done to me was actually for sexual interest. It was like my whole world came crashing down at that moment. Tyndall was ultimately accused of sexually abusing hundreds of patients. In response, USC agreed to pay more than a billion dollars in civil settlements, a record amount for such a payout by a college or university. The school's then president also resigned. Tyndall was supposed to go on trial next year on several sex crime charges, but then he died earlier this month at the age of 76, reportedly of natural causes. You know, it's a huge disappointment. 
Although Audrey Nofziger wasn't a plaintiff in the criminal case against Tyndall because of the statute of limitations, she says his death has left her and many other victims feeling like Tyndall escaped justice. Him passing before this case got off the ground for trial, it was definitely my biggest fear and very discouraged to see that happen. Tyndall's attorney, Leonard Levine, says his client always maintained his innocence and looked forward to the trial as a way to clear his name. And all he ever wanted was his day in court, which he was confident would end in his complete exoneration. Now neither he nor his accusers will get that, and that is very unfortunate for everyone involved. John Manley, an attorney for many of Tyndall's accusers, including two in the criminal case, blasts Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon for moving too slowly to bring Tyndall's case to trial. You know, when you're a serial predator and you get to escape prison by simply waiting it out, that is injustice. And, you know, it's nauseating to see all these public officials give lip service to protecting women and when the rubber meets the road, they do nothing. In an emailed statement to NPR, the DA's office says it understands the disappointment of Tyndall's victims. But the DA says the prosecution was slowed by the COVID-19 pandemic, which shuttered courts. Tyndall's death has also revived criticisms of USC for not doing more to protect students from Tyndall, especially when co-workers reported him years earlier for inappropriate behavior during patient examinations. Attorney John Manley argues it's an example of a bigger problem. I think that the problem of doctors engaging in sexual misconduct is much more widespread than people imagine, especially at academic institutions, because Behind every George Sindel that gets access to their patients for years to sexually abuse them is an administrator who knew and did nothing. USC doesn't have a response to George Tyndall's death, but a spokesperson said the school had put in place many safeguards in recent years to protect students from sexual assault. For NPR News, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a settlement between the Biden administration and the American Civil Liberties Union marks the end to a controversial Trump administration policy that allowed migrant families to be separated from each other. That story is still ahead. Road trips this fall mean you've got time to listen, catch your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live, or rewind and play them back with the WBUR app. Download it for free before you hit the road. This is 90.9 WBUR, scattered showers until just about 8 o'clock tonight, and then turning partly cloudy, about 48 for a low. Tomorrow, isolated showers for the first part of the day, then sunshine by the afternoon. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. The air is crisp, the cider donuts are hot, it's fall in New England. If you're like me, you might be wondering where to go leaf peeping. Here's a tip from our field guide to Boston. 
There are some relatively easy trails for new hikers or families close to the city, like Blue Hills or Middlesex Fells reservations. But be aware, you might run into a crowd of neighbors also trying to take in the fall colors. If you want something more challenging with less crowds, lace up your hiking boots and head up Caribou Mountain in Maine or Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire. And remember, by the time trees in Boston are changing color, trees further north may already be shedding their leaves. To get more tips like this about navigating the seasons in Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. News today in former President Trump's federal election interference case. The judge presiding over the case in Washington, D.C., imposed a limited gag order that bars Trump from making public statements targeting the prosecutors, the court staff, and likely witnesses. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas was at the courthouse today and joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. So this seems like a victory for the government. Is it? Well, the government didn't get everything that it wanted, but it certainly got uh, a fair chunk of it. So (laughs) special counsel Jack Smith's team was asking the court for a limited gag order on Trump. Smith's team said that this was necessary because uh, Trump has made public comments, inflammatory ones about all sorts of things related to this case. Uh, He's called the judge a radical Obama hack. He's called special counsel Jack Smith deranged. He's gone after potential witnesses like former Vice President Mike Pence, former Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, And more generally, he said that the justice system is rigged uh, and that he can't get a fair trial. Now, in court today, Assistant U.S. Attorney Molly Gaston said those sorts of inflammatory public statements could intimidate witnesses. They could taint the jury pool. Uh, And she argued that Trump is saying these things in an effort to uh, try this case in the court of public opinion instead of in the courtroom where it belongs. Uh, And she said that he shouldn't be allowed to do that. Okay, and how did Trump's legal team push back on that? Like, did they try to defend the things Trump has said? Well, Trump attorney John Loro said basically everything that Trump has said is protected by the First Amendment. And he denied that any of the statements that Trump has made uh, have been threatening. He stressed that this case is unprecedented. It's the prosecution of a former president, a current candidate for president. It's the middle of the presidential campaign. Uh, And he accused the Biden administration of trying to censor Trump, uh, who is, of course, Biden's chief political rival. Now, Loro said Trump is entitled to speak his mind, to call the case against him politically motivated if he thinks so, and to speak truth to what he said was oppression. Now, Chutkin jumped in at that point, and she basically told Loro uh, to tone it down. She said she understands that he has a message that he wants to get out, but she didn't want any campaign rhetoric in her courtroom. Uh, Laurel said the easiest solution in his mind here would be to push back the trial from March uh, of next year until after the 2024 election. Chutkin immediately shot that down. She said this trial is not going to yield uh, to the election cycle. And how did Chutkin explain her decision? Well, she listened to about two hours of arguments in the courtroom, and then she took a brief recess. Uh, And when she came back, she said, this isn't about whether she likes the language that Trump uses. This is about language that presents a danger to the administration of justice. She said Trump can criticize the government in general terms. He can criticize the Biden administration. Uh, He can criticize the Justice Department. He can even publicly argue that his prosecution uh, is politically motivated. But no criminal defendant, she said, would be allowed to call the prosecutor a deranged thug like uh, Trump has called Jack Smith. 
No criminal defendant would be allowed to smear the prosecutors like that. She said it's not going to happen in this case either. Trump's candidacy, she said, does not give him carte blanche to vilify public servants uh, who are just doing their job. And so she barred him and other parties as well from making or reposting any statements publicly targeting the special counsel and his staff, any statements publicly targeting any of the judges, staff or court personnel. She also barred him from making statements about potential witnesses or the subject of their testimony. But he can, for example, criticize Mike Pence, but he can't talk about Pence's role in the events related to this case. All right. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The crisis in the state's shelter system for homeless families is forcing officials to take a step they'd hope to avoid. They'll soon have to stop guaranteeing families shelter. Governor Maura Healey said today the shelters are nearing capacity And once the number of families in them reaches 7,500, the state will no longer guarantee more families can get in. It expects to hit that point at the end of this month. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel has been following this situation. It does sound pretty sobering. Gabriella, give us some context to this. What does the situation look like on the ground now? So as of today, there are 6,945 families in the state's family shelter system. This shelter population is more than double what it was last year. The backdrop here is that Massachusetts has a 1983 right to shelter law that obligates the state to provide shelter to eligible families. But over the past year, there's been a record number of families in need of housing. That's partly because of the ongoing housing crisis in the state, but it's also due to newly arrived migrant families coming to Massachusetts from places like Haiti. There are more than 3,000 households in overflow hotels and motels, and there are about 1,000 of those that don't have a shelter provider. So the National Guard is helping to coordinate services. Could you clarify for us what makes a family eligible for the network of family shelters in the state? What criteria do they have to meet? There are a number of criteria, and it's gotten increasingly strict over the years. So you need to be a Massachusetts resident. There is an income limit, and you also have to have a child under the age of 21 or be pregnant. Now, on top of all that, you also need to be homeless for a specific reason, and there's a list of things that count, things like a fire, a flood, a natural disaster, domestic violence, a no-fault eviction, or a child being exposed to a health and safety risk. And what will happen when the state does hit 7,500 families in the family shelter system? What happens um, in a couple of weeks? Because that sounds like when it's going to meet that amount. Right. So Governor Moore Healy said that there will be a wait list established for the shelter system. Families with high needs, including health and safety risks, will be prioritized for shelter placement. But especially with winter approaching, we need everyone to understand that we are entering a new phase of this challenge. We can no longer guarantee shelter placement for families who are sent here. I should say that there have been threats of a wait list before, but it's never happened in the program's 40-year history. So what else is the state doing to address what's happening now? There are a couple things. This morning, the governor announced that there will be a new person leading the shelter system, Lieutenant General Scott Rice. He um, used to serve in the Air Force and with the Massachusetts National Guard. He oversaw the response to various natural disasters and also the marathon bombing. Also, Healy says that the state is working to help families exit the shelter system to free up space for other families in need. This includes boosting the state's rental assistance program, expanding affordable housing, and officials are working on job placement and job readiness. 
the Healy administration has been asking the federal government not just for funding, but also to expedite work permits for migrants because many of them wait months and sometimes years to get work authorization. Mm -hmm. And obviously, without a job, it's hard to leave the shelter system. And Gabriella, what will happen to families who need shelter when there's a wait list? Uh, So I put that question to Liz Alfred of Greater Boston Legal Services. She says, we know what will happen because we can look at all the families that are deemed ineligible under the current system. They stay in places that are unheated or they stay in cars or they stay outside or they stay in abusive situations. I think we will see more families having to stay in places that are not safe for them. I have heard from some homeless advocates that they hope the state sets up large temporary congregate facilities like you might see after a hurricane or another natural disaster so families can have a roof while they wait for a spot in the shelter system. And Healy did say she'd like to see the federal government set up something like this, these large sites, although it's not clear exactly what that will look like. Gabriella, what else did you hear from shelter providers and homeless advocates about the change? Some shelter providers tell me that they really do not have places to put people, so they understand this move. But some homeless advocates expressed total dismay. They are looking at whether a wait list could prompt a legal challenge, and others are worried that there will be a two-tiered system, one for newly arrived migrants and another for longtime residents, even if they all meet the exact same eligibility criteria. So I think we're really going to have to wait to see what happens on the ground when the state does hit that threshold of 7,500 families in the shelter system. All right, which is coming soon. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel, thank you. Thank you. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's Hidden Gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue will help make your vision a reality. More at wbur.org slash rentals. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to recognize and report phishing. More at cisa.gov slash secureourworld. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. diplomats are pushing for a way to let emergency aid into Gaza and for Americans to leave Gaza through Egypt. Meanwhile, President Biden has taken a pro-Israel stance since the Hamas attacks, but he's begun to warn about the situation on the ground in Gaza. It's Monday, October 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Civil liberties advocates say some 1,000 immigrant families in the U.S. remain separated today after they were split up at the U.S. border with Mexico under orders of then-President Donald Trump. Today, there was a settlement to assist those families and prevent others from being separated. And a theater company in Boston that doesn't look or sound like any other troupe in the country. It's 6.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Gaza Strip has been under a complete Israeli siege for a week. Imports are halted, including aid, fresh water, food, and fuel. Israeli strikes have killed more than 2,700 Palestinians there. The bombardment comes in response to an attack by Hamas militants that killed 1,300 people in Israel. There are aid trucks in Egypt at its border with Gaza, packed and ready to deliver fuel and aid. But Israel says there's no ceasefire deal in place for the crossing. NPR's Aya Batrawi has more. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, says most of its shelters in Gaza have run out of clean water. Shops have run out of bottled water, and people's water tanks have emptied. Some families in Gaza are now drinking contaminated water and even seawater. Doctors Without Borders says hospitals have also run out of painkillers. It says the wounded, many of them children, are left screaming in pain. The UN humanitarian organization says hospitals only have a few hours of fuel left for generators. The organization's chief, Martin Griffiths, says the specter of death is hanging over Gaza. Eya Batraoui, NPR News, Jerusalem. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel again today, pledging U.S. support as it prepares for a ground attack in Gaza. This after President Biden warned Israel that occupation of Gaza would be a, quote, big mistake. A federal judge is imposing a partial gag order on former President Donald Trump after he posted inflammatory language about witnesses in the case. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the restrictions cover prosecutors, court staff, and people who may testify in next year's trial. Judge Tanya Chutkin says neither the First Amendment nor Donald Trump's political candidacy give him license to vilify public servants. She granted most of the Justice Department's request for a limited gag order on Trump and the lawyers in the federal election interference case. Trump has called special counsel lawyers thugs. He's blasted potential witnesses, including former Vice President Mike Pence, former Attorney General Bill Barr, and former Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley. The judge says her order is about language that presents a danger to the administration of justice. She says she'll consider sanctions if anyone violates the gag order. Trump's lawyer John Lauro signaled he will appeal. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. In Illinois, a 71-year-old man made a court appearance today charged with a hate crime in the death of a six-year-old Muslim boy and the serious wounding of his mother, who is expected to survive. She was, however, unable to leave the hospital to attend the funeral of her little boy today. Joseph Chuba was the pa- Palestinian-American woman's landlord in Plainfield, about an hour west of Chicago. She reportedly suggested praying for peace between Hamas and Israel when the suspect allegedly got angry and attacked both with a knife. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Wexner Foundation is cutting ties with Harvard University and the Harvard Kennedy School over the university's response to the Hamas attack on Israeli civilians earlier this month. The nonprofit fosters leadership in the Jewish and Israeli communities. According to the Boston Globe, the foundation's letter to Harvard says the two organizations' core values no longer align. 
The letter says Harvard leadership failed to take a clear stance against the murder of Israeli civilians. Harvard responded this afternoon with a statement condemning the, quote, savageness and brutality of the crimes perpetrated by Hamas against defenseless Israeli civilians. Harvard went on to thank the Wexner Foundation for its longstanding support of student scholarships. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she's working with the White House and State Department to get Massachusetts residents out of Gaza. That includes a couple and their toddler from Medway. They became trapped there while visiting family. The family has been stuck in Gaza's border with Egypt for days. Israel is planning a ground attack in Gaza. Massachusetts' family shelter system is nearing its capacity. Governor Maura Healey says the current level of demand is not sustainable. She says close to 7,000 families are in emergency shelters, and the state cannot handle more than 7,500 families. Healy expects to hit that limit by the end of the month. She says once the number is reached, the state will no longer guarantee that other families will be placed in the shelters. We will continue to engage, assess, and serve every family who appeals for help as best we can. Families with high needs, including health and safety risks, will be prioritized for shelter placement. Healy also appointed the former director of the U.S. Air National Guard to lead the statewide emergency shelter system. And the MBTA is hosting the first of two public meetings today about the proposed red-blue connector project. It would extend the blue line from its end at Bowdoin Station through a new tunnel to the Charles MGH station on the red line. The meeting was set to get underway this hour at Mass General Hospital. Earlier this year, the MBTA earmarked $15 million in new funding for the planning and design of the long-sought project. And Boston Medical Center is launching a new pilot program to help patients lower their utility bills. The year-long pilot is called Clean Power Prescriptions. It allows the center to write prescriptions for electricity credits using renewable energy. The program uses solar panels mounted on one of the center's buildings to generate the credits. $50 worth of credit will be applied to the energy bills of about 80 patients every month. Should see light rain over the next few hours, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight in the mid-40s. Tomorrow could begin with drizzle, but skies should brighten as the day continues. About 60 degrees tops. 54 now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden has been full-throated in his support for Israel after the deadly attacks by Hamas. He has described in detail how Jewish civilians were killed in the attack, and he called it the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Israel has the right to defend itself and its people. Full stop. There's never justification for terrorist attacks. But this weekend, the president began to talk more about the situation on the ground in Gaza. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza, innocent Palestinian families and a vast majority have nothing to do with Hamas. They're being used as human shields. We wanted to explore this shift in tone and also to talk about what Republicans are saying about the war. And to do that, we're joined now by NPR national political correspondent, Mara Lyson. Hey, Mara. Hey, Elsa. So what should we make of the way that President Biden has chosen to talk about this conflict? Like, what do you notice about the way he's choosing his words? Well, President Biden is a guy who has, over time, occasionally got twisted up in his words. But this time, he has been crystal clear about Israel. 
He's been about as forceful and morally clear as he's ever been. He's expressed firm support, told Israel they will get whatever help they want, that the U.S. has Israel's back, Hamas is pure evil. I think that reflects not only the bipartisan support that exists for Israel right now in the United States, but also Biden has had a career-long identity as a supporter of Israel. He talked about meeting Golda Meir 50 years ago in 1973. Hmm. Golda Meir was the fourth prime minister of Israel and the first female prime minister. So this is something that is a long-standing conviction on his part. You just heard him say there's no justification for the attack. And in that second clip, he talked about Hamas using Palestinians as human shields. So he's trying to make it clear there is no moral equivalence here between the terrorist acts of Hamas and the retaliation by Israel. And, and can you tell us more about this shift in his messaging? Like, what stands out to you? Well, first, his message was all about Israel and the atrocities and how America stands behind Israel. This right. new message is much more nuanced. It's about how important it is that Israel acts according to the rule of law, to the law of war. He's also said Israel should not reoccupy Gaza over the long term. That's something the Israelis also say they don't want to do. He's trying to put more emphasis on keeping the conflict contained, making sure it doesn't evolve into a regional conflagration involving countries like Iran. And I think he is, I don't think he's tempering his support for Israel, but this is a volatile situation that could get out of hand. And it's also not clear how long or if Israel can actually eliminate Hamas. That's their stated goal. Uh, we don't know how long it will take or if it's even possible. The Israeli defense minister told the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, that this is going to be very long and very tough. There will be a lot of casualties. Well, what about Republicans? I mean, especially Republicans who are running for president. How are they describing this conflict? Well, they're the Republicans running for president, and then there's Donald Trump. Right. Um, the big news, of course, was Trump's comments. He's been walking them back ever since that Hezbollah is very smart. BB let us down. Remarkable dissing of Israel at this moment. And he got some criticism from the other Republican candidates, which is very unusual. But they have been all over the map. There is a large and growing isolationist wing in the Republican Party, but also a long history of strongly supporting Israel. You have Ron DeSantis saying all Palestinians are anti anti-Semites and shouldn't be allowed into the U.S. as refugees. You've got Tim Scott and Mike Pence saying that the U.S. should send special forces into Gaza to rescue American hostages. And real quick, Mara, how big of a political issue do you think this will be in the 2024 race? I think that depends on how long the Israeli siege of Gaza goes on, how ugly it is. Uh, and if it looks like Israel is succeeding, it might help Biden in the 2024 elections. But the bottom line is that foreign policy is one of the things voters pay the least <laughs> attention to. That is NPR's Mara Liasson. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you. The federal government has reached a deal to compensate migrant families who were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border during the Trump administration. It has also agreed to bar any similar policy for nearly a decade. Jasmine Garst is NPR's immigration correspondent. She is with us now to explain the settlement that's been announced today with the ACLU. Hey there, Jasmine. Hello. Hi. So just start with a brief reminder of, of what went down with these family separations. Sure. Over 5,000 families were separated during the Trump administration under its so-called zero tolerance policy. This happened in 2017 and 2018. And in many cases, these children were taken to juvenile centers while parents were prosecuted and often deported. Uh, the stories, the testimonies are absolutely heart-wrenching. Okay. So the settlement announced today, what have the parties agreed on? 
A federal judge in San Diego still needs to sign off on the settlement. Families will get an interview with an asylum officer who will be briefed on what they went through. They'll also get work authorization and housing benefits. Earlier today, I spoke to Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I have met with reunited families. The trauma does not end upon reunification. There is a great deal of healing needed, and we are committed uh, to doing that which is necessary to restoring these individuals, their health and well-being. Okay, so he's talking about reunited families, but there are some families that have not yet been reunited, right? Is there anything here for them? Well, the U.S. government will continue to pay to help reunify the families who are still separated, continuing to find parents and guardians who got deported and bring them back to the U.S. According to the ACLU, up to a thousand kids still have not been reunified with their parents. Here's Lee Gallant. He's the ACLU lead counsel on this case. The Trump administration did not keep records. The court said it appears that the Trump administration tracked property more diligently than they tracked the whereabouts of little children. We have been searching for years for these families. And those kids, they're just scattered around the country, living with extended relatives, family, friends, or under state supervision. And this bar on reinstituting any policy, anything like this, for nearly a decade, what what do we know about that? Well, it's a big part of the settlement. It prohibits immigration officials from imposing a blanket policy of family separation for the next eight years. And it's not a stretch. Uh, Asked about this during a town hall back in May, former President Trump refused to rule out reinstituting the family separation policy if he's reelected. If the family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family. They don't come. So I know it sounds harsh. You know, I asked Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas about this, and here's what he had to say. My response is quite succinct, and that is that when we promulgate policies, it is vital that we adhere to our country's fundamental values, and we will not deviate from that. And real quick, Jasmine, the families who were separated, do they get any financial compensation? No, there had been talks with the Biden administration, but Republican lawmakers expressed outrage, saying the amounts under consideration were just too high. So this settlement does not give families any monetary compensation. And Piers Jasmine Guards, thank you. Thank you. Actress Suzanne Summers died yesterday after battling breast cancer for more than two decades. As NPR's Anastasia Siukis reports, Summers parlayed her comedic talents into entirely new endeavors as an author and wildly successful entrepreneur. Suzanne Summers first caught attention in a role in the 1973 film American Graffiti. She was on screen for less than 10 seconds and didn't say a word, but her beauty and charm were more than enough. That scene in American Graffiti got her an audition for the sitcom Three's Company, which premiered in 1977. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. For five seasons, Summers was a star on one of the most popular shows on television, playing the ultimate ditzy blonde. But after she demanded a raise from ABC, she was fired. 
That didn't end her television career. There was a short-lived show called She's the Sheriff, which ran for three seasons in the 1980s. And through most of the 1990s, she starred in another sitcom, this one called Step by Step. She even sang on that one. But in the meantime, she developed a whole other role as a business mogul. I used to do aerobics till I dropped. Then I found Thighmaster. Summers began a long stint as the spokesperson for the Thighmaster workout device, one of the quintessential as-seen-on-TV products of the 1990s. Summers and her husband, Alan Hamill, came to be the sole owners of the business. Summers told the podcast Hollywood Raw last year she had sold about 15 million thigh masters at around $20 a pop. For someone who played the dumbest blonde on television, I have a really good brain. (laughs) She was open about her health struggles. In 2018, she talked to Yahoo Lifestyle about her cancer. When you hear those three words, you have cancer, wow. That's coming face-to-face with your mortality. Even as she was battling cancer, Summers remained very much in the public eye. She wrote more than two dozen books, including 14 bestsellers. The books centered around health and wellness, and she also appeared on Dancing with the Stars. After her death, tributes poured in on social media from her friends and former colleagues. Fellow actress Morgan Fairchild said the two supported each other through health challenges. Fairchild wrote, quote, when we ran into each other, she would lean over and whisper, we're survivors. Also on social media, singer Barry Manilow wrote, quote, she was the sister I never had and my close confidant forever. We shared triumphs and heartaches. I will miss her dearly and hope that she is now out of pain and at peace. Today, Summers would have turned 77 years old. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. Come and dance on our floor. Take a step that is new. We've a lovable space that needs your face. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Business News at 630. Most U.S. households will spend less on heating bills this winter. We'll find out why. A mighty Monday on Wall Street. The Dow rose nearly a full percent. S&P picked up more than a full percent, and the Nasdaq finished up one and two-thirds percent. The Rite Aid drugstore chain is filing for bankruptcy. The company has seven stores in Massachusetts, including pharmacies in Revere, Fall River, and New Bedford. Rite Aid says the Chapter 11 filing is an attempt to offset years of annual losses and opioid-related lawsuits. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Conductor Václav Lukes returns with a lively Beethoven program October 27th and 29th. Handelandhaydn.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. 54 degrees now in the Boston area. More showers off and on until about 8 o'clock tonight. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies, light winds down to about the mid-40s. 
Tomorrow could begin with drizzle, but we should see some sunshine by the second half of the day. Temperatures about 60 degrees. Wednesday should be a nice day. Highs in the low 60s. 54 in Boston at 620. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston has a theater company that puts on productions you won't find anywhere else. It's dedicated to presenting Asian-American stories in two languages. Its founder is Allison Chu, who's one of ten local artists we're profiling this week. WBUR's Solon Kelleher went to a rehearsal and heard Chu limber up with the Chinese Mandarin equivalent of She Sells Seashells. Here's his report. Walk through the halls of Boston Center for the Arts, where Tron stage rehearses, and you may hear vocal warm-ups that sound like this. That's a Mandarin tongue twister coming out the mouth of Allison Chu. They are the founder of Tron Stage, the country's first theater company dedicated to telling Asian-American stories bilingually and transculturally. Chu is a 26-year-old queer Chinese-American immigrant, And although they're now leading this grassroots Boston theater company, their story begins in northeastern China, where Chu first fell in love with American storytelling. James Taylor, Alison Cross, Dixie Chicks, The Carpenters, and of course, very early on Taylor Swift era. There's a story, there's a person, there's basically a whole life behind every single story, uh, every single song. In music, I was able to see the other side of the world that I've never been to. But listening alone wasn't enough for Chu, who from half a world away felt beckoned by the likes of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River. Chu wanted to be an American country music singer. When I was about 12, I started to beg my parents to let me go to the U.S. for high school. And then eventually, after two years, they actually let me. Chu moved to Tennessee to be close to Nashville in the music scene. But coming to the United States made Chu see themselves in an entirely new way. I saw myself as Asian for the very first time. Because, you know, when you're in China, everybody else looked like you. I landed and I realized, oh, I'm different. Chu started auditioning for school plays, getting small parts as they were still learning English. When a teacher asked Chu to compose music for a production of Almost Maine, they had a breakthrough. It was one of the few times that I felt like, you know, this I probably actually belong to this. I felt like I felt like a director. I felt like I felt like I had control. I had, felt like I had a voice for once. Chu enrolled in a BFA program at Emerson, and when they were struggling to see themselves represented, they launched Tron Stage to tell stories by and for the greater Asian American community in Boston. I saw myself like I'm a bilingual creative. I can direct. I do dramaturgy. What am I equipped of to offer to the community to change the situation? Five years in, Tron Stage's mission is to cultivate joyful and challenging Asian-American stories that pioneer a new activism in the arts. And maintaining that type of community takes work. So this is where we rehearse. Right now, today, we're in for some Asian-American Playwrights Collective Playfest. Chu lets the playwrights determine how a story should intertwine Mandarin and English, Last year, Tron Stage put on a dark comedy, 
The company performed the same show over two weekends, one weekend in English and the other in Mandarin. Here, a cast rehearses in English for a story about the busing of Chinese-American students to schools outside of Chinatown. We have no choice. We're not in China anymore. I know. We can speak out here, even if we don't know English. That's actors Jenny Lee and Mordecai Choi. As a Korean-American actor, Lee recalls searching for opportunities in Boston. And so I was deep diving on the internet. I was looking into, like, is there, like, Asian-American theater in Boston? And literally everything I could find had Allison's name on it. It was like, Allison, Allison, Allison. I was like, who is this woman? She's incredible. Only a few years after arriving in America and giving up on their dream of country music, Chu still tells American stories, just in the form of theater rather than music. At Tron Stage, those stories are an opportunity to build a sense of community. We're hoping to change who gets to see American theater, who gets to feel belonging and joy and being community with each other in the theater spaces. For Chu, it's important that audiences walk away from a Tron Stage show feeling Boston has a place for Asian American immigrants and the dreams they bring with them, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Keller. Music makes pictures and often tells stories. All of it Country boy John Denver, one of Allison Chu's favorite artists growing up in China. To read more about Chu and to see more of the artists we're featuring this week, visit WBUR.org. And tomorrow morning, listen for our story on a painter whose murals give residents of Roxbury a sense of belonging. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Jeff Bulch. In 1992, over a weekend, Bulch's mother died, and the following Monday was a trash pickup day. I was out front doing some yard work, and a young fellow came up the driveway wheeling a big barrel. I remember he was younger than I, but he grinned and he said, Hey, how's Ms. Balch doing? And I hadn't yet had to tell a stranger. I took a breath and I said, Well, she was very sick, and I'm afraid she died a couple of days ago. And he froze. He stammered, I'm so sorry, and he lowered his eyes and hurried away. And I was looking down, too, pretty teary. And when I looked up again, I blinked to see three people coming across our yard. There was a middle-aged man flanked by the young fellow and another young guy. And the older man walked up to me and said, Are you Mrs. Balch's son? And we shook, and I said yes. Well, he said, looking left and right at his crew, then straight back at me, we just want you to know your mom was the nicest person on our route. And all I could manage was a quick thank you, and they walked away. And I'm older now than mom got to be, and I was flashing back to this story last Monday, which is our own trash pickup day. I can't emulate mom's bubbliness as I talk to our collectors, Jose and Josh, but I do see them 
and I try to see them the way the crew chief saw me 30-plus years ago and the way Mom saw him and his crew as people worth taking some time for. It's all about... It's all about perceiving the humanity in everyone we're dealing with. And uh, that was the crew chief's gift to me, was to humanize that moment. Jeff Balch lives in Evanston, Illinois. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met.